Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back? The Zombie of the Alto Paranya by W. Stanley Moss. From his deck chair on the veranda, Emile could see the paddle boat nosing around the bend in the river. Like a water beetle it came, squat and ungainly, insinuating its crustacean frame with a fanfare of hooting and splashing into the placid exhalations of the landscape. Once a month the boat from Buenos Aires came up the Alto Paraña to the Jesuit country of Misiones, and always it stopped alongside the tongue of land where Emile's bungalow squatted at the water's edge. When, as now, the river was low, the fringe of beach would separate the water from the curtain of Taquara, which rose to the height of the jungle behind. But later, when the rains began, the beach would vanish overnight, and Emile would waken to find the water lapping at the wooden stays which supported the veranda on which he slept. The boat never stayed at the station for more than an hour, but remained just so long as the business of unloading the checking of the inventories and the signing of receipts took to be concluded. And now Emile watched the ungainly craft looming larger before him, its paddles churning up a trail of muddy water, which receded like some monstrous reptile in its wake. He saw Silvestro, the foreman, and a couple of Indians making their way along the wooden jetty, so as to be ready to start unloading. These things he viewed with detachment, as though he were the spectator of a film which he had seen many times before. The sight bored him. A sallow-faced, compact figure with a straggling red beard and down-slanting eyes and little hair on the top of his head, he looked like one of those portraits which present an altogether different picture when you turn them upside down. If you had inverted his face, you would have seen an unshaven Chinaman wearing a large red fur hat. Presently he got up and sauntered down to the water's edge. Sitting in the captain's cabin, papers before him on the desk and a glass of warm whisky in his hand, he looked up and said, That's the lot signed. Is there anything else? The captain was an elderly man. Hair grew in abundance from his nostrils and ears. His clothes were shabby, and the glossy peak of his cap was cracked in half. There's one more thing, he replied. I've got a passenger on board who wants to get off here. Get off here? What on earth for? He wanted to go as far as the boat would take him. Why? Don't get me wrong, I didn't ask him to come. He paid his fare, and I brought him, that's all. What does he want? He's going to make his fortune, the captain said. It's the same old story. But he seems quite a nice young fellow. Couldn't you put him up for a while? You know very well that I refuse to have anybody staying with me. The captain had eyes of pale, tired blue, blue that grows thinner and more delicate with the years, and he glanced at Emile, eyebrows raised. Are you still adamant? he asked, and then, when he saw that the other did not intend to answer him, What about the hut? he added. The hut's on the point. It's been empty since Schlesinger died, hasn't it? Yes, said Emile, as though caught off guard. Yes, it's empty. I suppose he could stay there if he wanted to. He turned his back on the captain and poured himself another glass of whisky from the decanter on the filing cabinet. He was thinking of Schlesinger, the last mad night, and having to carry the still warm body two hundred yards through the rain and dumping it in the river. But I'm against it. I know what happens when two people get stuck in a place like this. 
Like you and Schlesinger, the captain suggested. Yes, like me and Schlesinger. The captain spread out his hands on the desk. Don't be cruel to this boy, he said, now raising his right hand as if in absolution. He's not like Schlesinger. Emil wheeled round, the whiskey splashing out of his glass, his hand trembling. Stop acting, you old quack, he snapped. Don't you start preaching to me. He came close to the desk and gripped its edges and leaned across it so that his beard fell almost in the captain's face. In his down-slanting eyes there gleamed a veneer of power, the knowledge that his shaft had struck on tender skin. You know as well as I do that everybody turns into a Schlesinger here, no matter how they start. And then the door opened, and they looked up and saw the young man standing in the entrance. He was wearing an open-necked shirt and shorts, and on his bare knees the skin had gone lobster red with sunburn. His blonde hair, his peeling nose and wide-open expression gave him the appearance of a schoolboy who has just had a wash and comes to present himself at the tea-table. When he saw Emil, he stopped, his hands still on the doorknob, and hesitantly he said, I'm most awfully sorry. Am I interrupting something? The captain's sigh of relief was audible. No, he quickly replied, his blue eyes creasing in tune with the smile that crept upon his lips. Not at all. We've finished our business. Then he rose from his chair and said, I'd like you to meet one another, Emil. This is Mr. Clift, whom I brought along from B.A. That's right, said the young man, his countenance brightening. We've had a splendid trip, absolutely thrilling. I'm almost sorry it's come to an end, really. But the skipper's told me lots about you, and I know that it'll be grand here. I'm terribly glad to meet you. He spoke very quickly, erratically, as though he had a lot to say and all too little time in which to say it. Now he forsook his place in the doorway and came forward, blushing slightly beneath the lobster overcoating of his skin, and made as if to shake Emile by the hand. For a moment Emile watched his approach, making no move to accept the proffered hand, then turning abruptly to the captain. Is there anything else? he asked, his lips curling in a sneer. Anything else, father? I hope you'll show Mr. Cliff the ropes a bit, and perhaps you could let him have a bed in your bungalow until Schlesinger's hut's ready. Emile made no reply. Behind him he heard Cliff saying, That really would be terribly decent of you. They left the jetty and started to walk towards the bungalow. Emile noticed the expression on the young man's face, the rather incredulous look in his eyes as he saw the building for the first time. There was no concealment of his thoughts, and Emile understood them. He remembered how he himself had experienced that same feeling when first he had set eyes upon this pile of wood and corrugated iron. So, this is my home, he thought, a ripple of disgust trembling down his spine. So this is your home, Clift said. That's right, don't you find it charming? As if in reply there came a hoot from the boat's siren, and turning they saw the paddles beginning to churn in reverse as the craft put off from the jetty and swung away into the centre of the river. Look, said Clift, the skipper's waving to us. He started, waving his arms in return, and shouted a goodbye, which was inaudible above the noise of the engines. Then he turned to Emil. Isn't he a delightful old man? Uh, the skipper, I mean. Such an unusual type for this part of the world. I always imagined that the captains of riverboats were hard-drinking, cursing, tobacco-spitting tyrants. But not a bit of it. Just the reverse, in fact. He's so gentle and quiet. More like a priest, really. 
Emil grunted. He was a priest, once upon a time. The old fool. You mean, no, he wasn't defrocked. He just gave it up because he hadn't got the guts to go on with it. But that was years ago, before you were born. And then, before the other had time to reply, Emil waved to the foreman on the jetty. Silvestro, he called. Come here. The foreman came running up the stretch of sand to where they stood. He was an elderly man, tight-skinned, with a small head that looked like an Aztec skull that had been arrested in its shrinkage. Silvestro, I want you to have Mr. Clift's things taken to my bungalow for tonight. He'll stay in the spare room until you've got Schlesinger's hut ready. To Clift, Emil said, this is Silvestro, my capataz. He'll be able to help you if you need anything. Thank you, said Clift. Thank you very much. He didn't face Emil as he spoke. He was looking away along the river, watching the boat as it straightened out in midstream and started with a hustle of paddles to churn its way out of sight. He heard Emil saying, Come on, I'll show you to your room, but he found himself unwilling to take his eyes from the boat. Again he was a schoolboy, reluctant to leave the carriage window while he could still see his parents waving goodbye to him from the platform. But then he slowly turned and found himself looking once more towards the bungalow, the school, first night away from home, nostalgia and a pillow wet with tears. Still, Emil was talking. Good chap, Silvestro. He's a sort of magician at producing things. He'll be able to fix you up with a compañera if you want one. He glanced at a young man. I suppose you do want one. A, a, a compañera? I don't know what that means. Emil chuckled into his beard. Child, he said. It's a sort of wife which can cook. You mean an Indian girl? What did you expect? A white one? No, but they're quite cheap and you can change them if you don't find them satisfactory. I, I, I don't think I really need one. Emil laughed out loud, then suddenly he stopped and said, Now I'll take you to your room. Clift was glad. Grand, he said, with eagerness pursuing the change of subject. There must be a splendid view of the river from the bungalow. They did not meet again until dusk. Emil was lying on his bed when he heard a knock on the door and Clift's voice asking, May I come in? Would you want... Come in, come in, there's no need to shout. Clift entered, a hand stuffed shyly in his pocket and stood just inside the doorway. I've just been unpacking, he explained, and I found my mirror smashed to smithereens, he laughed nervously. Seven years bad luck, I suppose. Then, after a pause, added, Do you think you could lend me yours? Mine, Emil grunted and sat up so that his legs dangled over the edge of the bed. What makes you think I've got a mirror? Well, after all, one likes to look fairly presentable. For whose benefit? Mine! <laughs> Emil burst out laughing, the wind whistling through his teeth and his red beard twitching. Presentable, he echoed. That's wonderful! Clift stood with his back against the door, his fingers jingling a bunch of keys in his pocket, abashed. I don't see what's so funny about it, he said. You'll see what's funny all right, Emil told him. You'll find out in time. Shall I tell you something? I broke my mirror too. I can't remember how long ago that was. Perhaps it was seven years ago. Perhaps it was yesterday. But do you know how I broke it? Can you guess? No? Well, I'll tell you. I put my fist through it, bang in the middle, because I couldn't stand the sight of it any longer. They had supper on the veranda, and afterwards with cigars and drinks, 
settled themselves in deck chairs overlooking the river. From here they could see the red eyes of the alligators, like coupled tail lamps straying across the water, while to their ears there came the first notes, the tuning up of the frog orchestra. Do you hear the noise of frogs? It sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it isn't creepy, not eerie like the Urutau. You wait until you hear the Urutau. It's unearthly. Sends the shivers down your back. Clift asked, What is it? An animal or something? It's a night bird. The Indians say it contains the souls of haunted men. I'm inclined to believe them. It laughs like a madman, like a raving lunatic. You'll understand when you hear it. Emile stretched a hand for the bottle of Kanya beneath his chair and refilled his glass. Then, it was one of the things that really got Schlesinger, he continued, that and the red eyes of the alligators. He got so he used to see alligators everywhere. He held out the Kanya bottle towards Clift. Help yourself to another drink. The other shook his head, and with a flavour of apology he replied, Thanks very much, but I don't think I will. I haven't got much taste for that stuff. Emile replaced the bottle on the floor. You'll soon get used to it, he said. Clift made no reply. Instead, who was uh, Schlesinger? he asked. He was the chap who died in the hut which you're going to stay in. He died there? What a horrible thought. It was as well that he died. Why? What was wrong with him? There was almost nothing right with him. He lost his reason. He was diseased. He wouldn't eat. But to tell you the truth, it was rather fascinating to watch his progress. One felt as though one were actually witnessing a metamorphosis. I was quite young then, you know, and I found it strangely amusing. Can you understand that? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I can. Perhaps you could have done something to help him. There was nothing to be done. He was always drunk, crazy drunk. And what happened to him in the end? What did he die of? The Indians got him, just like that. For a while, Clift said nothing. Then he gave a nervous little laugh and said, Well, that won't happen to me, thank goodness. I'm not staying here long enough. Just a matter of days while I find a good guide and collect the necessary kit. And where do you think you're going? Into the jungle. I heard there was silver to be found in the hills. Who told you so? There have been one or two expeditions, haven't there? Certainly. But who's to know if they ever found anything? They never came back. Emile paused for a moment to sip his drink. Do you realise that you have to cut your way through every yard of this jungle? It could take you a week to travel a quarter mile. I've been told it's going to be very difficult, but I'm determined to give it a try. I've got to make money, lots of it. He clasped his hands across his knees, and, as if in a nutshell to explain the reason for his expedition, added, You see, um, I've got a debt to pay. A debt? Do you mean to say that you're proposing to go and get buried in there? Emile waved a hand airily towards the jungle that lay behind the bungalow. Buried alive? Just because of a debt? Well, I'm damned. That's the sort of crazy thing one would expect from an Englishman. Then, as if the thought had not until that moment struck him, he asked, I suppose you are English, aren't you? Of course, didn't you know? You never told me. By my accent, I mean, Clift turned towards his companion. I'm sorry, he said, it never struck me that you might have not guessed I was English, any more that I could have doubted that you were a German. 
Did you say German? Emile spoke the words very slowly, as though to chew each one before spitting it out. What makes you think I'm a German? I, I, I really don't know. Just instinct, I suppose. You, you look like a German, and you talk like one, Emile said. If you ever repeat those words in front of the Indians, I'll wring your neck. And then he burst into a great roar of laughter, drowning Clift's attempted apology, and slapping his thigh with barrack-room gusto. Get on, he urged, the mirth still bubbling within him. What debt did you owe? Tell me all about it. The Englishman, reluctant to reply, drew into himself like some pricked mollusk. Emile patted him on the knee. Don't be silly, he said. I've got to be humoured. I've been here for a long time, you know, and I'm not much accustomed to company. Clift's rosy face looked sulky. It's a debt of honour. I can't go back to England until I'm in a position to clear it. He clasped his hands together as if to crush some invisible nut between his palms. It's as simple as that. Simple, my foot. It's mad. Crazy. My dear fellow, if it's only money you want. Only money, Clift interrupted, eyebrows up, hands raised. For what else could one want to come to a place like this? Surely you don't stay here for pleasure. There are other things, said Emile. If it was only money that I wanted, I could have retired years ago. Why, you could make a fortune even here by selling Kanya to the Indians. But that's illegal, isn't it? Everything's illegal. But who's to stop you up here? Things like that get known. You think so? Why don't you try it and see? I've got my plans. I believe that everything will turn out all right, my way. The Englishman yawned loudly, exaggeratedly. I feel dog-tired. Would you think it rude if I were to turn in now? Am I so forbidding a companion? Again, the nervous little love. Of course not. It's just that I'm tired. I didn't get any sleep last night. Clift got up from his chair and rested his hands on the balustrade, and stood for a moment, looking out across the river, then slowly he turned and started to walk towards the door of his bedroom. Emile watched him closely. He knew what the Englishman was feeling. It had been the same that first night with Schlesinger. From his bedroom door, Clift said, A Good night, Emile. Emile said nothing, but poured himself another glass of Kanya. Without turning, he knew that the Englishman had not yet gone into his room, but was still hovering at the door. You don't mind me calling you by your Christian name, do you? It's more friendly somehow, especially as we're the only two white men here. Emile said, for God's sake, stop talking like a dying schoolgirl. Good night. For a moment there was silence. Then he heard the door creak shut behind him. And then, as if in applause, there sounded the full-blooded roar of the frog's chorus, while from somewhere, not far off in the jungle... There came the mad, chilling laugh of the Urutau. High above the Takwara there rode a round moon, and in the water, flashing, its image dodged like an uncatchable ball among the red eyes of the alligators. On the eve of Clift's departure into the jungle, Emil walked across from his bungalow to Schlesinger's hut and found the Englishman giving his stores a last-minute check-over on the veranda, Hello, said Clift brightly, looking up from the rucksack's contents, which he had emptied out on the veranda floor. 
He appeared to be in high spirits, as though packing his tuck-box on the last day of term. The ruddiness of his skin had toned down during the past two weeks, but apart from this, his appearance was as spruce and as boyish as it had been on the day of his arrival. All set, as you can see, he announced. The Englishman was smiling. I've collected three Guarani porters, and Silvestro has produced a guide for me, who says he knows of a good track through the jungle, so everything's shipshape at last. I can scarcely wait to leave. There is no such thing as a track through the jungle. No such thing exists. Emile glanced at the Englishman's face, the blue eyes, the wavy blonde hair, and the chin which was shaved perhaps every third day. There was nothing new in this sight. He'd seen it all before. How many years ago? It was as though he were looking at his own ghost, and the realisation sent a chill wind through his bones. For a moment he hesitated, staring before him. Then, muttering something beneath his breath, he suddenly turned and started to walk away from the hut. What was that you said? called Clift, but he received no reply. Clift had gone, and once more life for Emile resumed its normal course. It was not that the Englishman's presence had in any way altered his routine, but the mere existence of another European in the vicinity had created an undercurrent of interest and curiosity. And now that the young man had departed, Emile was conscious of a new emptiness in his life. It was on a Sunday that Clift had gone, and it was on a Sunday exactly five weeks later that he returned. The sun was low in the sky when Silvestro the foreman came running to Emile's bungalow, and Emile, who did not like being disturbed at this time of day, asked gruffly, "'What's the matter?' "'The Englisher,' panted the foreman. "'He come back, signor!' Emile was surprised. Curtly he dismissed his compañera and came out onto the veranda. There, said Silvestro, there, senor. Emile followed the foreman's pointing arm until his eyes rested upon a small lurching figure coming along the narrow fringe of sand between the taquara and the water's edge. Shall I go to help, senor? Silvestro asked, already making as if to go. But Emile laid a hand on his arm. No, no, he said. He'll be here in about ten minutes. There's nothing you can do to help. When Clift arrived, he did not go straight to the bungalow, but went instead to Schlesinger's hut, and it was not until supper-time that he came to see Emil. His skin was the colour of walnut-stain, and over his chin and upper lip there straggled a film of hairs as though his flesh had gone mouldy. Thus he stood in front of Emil's deck-chair, a look of mingled reticence and embarrassment in his eyes, and said, "'Well, here I am. May I invite myself to supper?' Emil motioned him to sit down. Sorry I couldn't have made myself a little more beautiful. I've lost all my kit. Haven't even got any soap. But perhaps... What happened? Clift sat down in the empty chair beside Emile and helped himself to a drink from the bottle of Kanya, which stood on the floor. He took a long gulp at the drink, drew the back of his hand across his lips, and said, The Indians ran away one night and pinched all the stores. Fortunately, I had a knife and a compass in my belt. I realised that it would be hopeless to try to continue alone, so I struck a course for the river. It took me seventeen days to reach it, and another two to make my way back here. Emil grunted. I could have told you all of that before you set off, you pig-headed ass. Clift said, It's better to find out these things for oneself, otherwise one would never learn anything. 
damned silly way of going about it. I don't think so. I know now, for instance, that a human being can live for nineteen days on nothing but slugs and not feel too bad about it. And I've learned another thing. I know that I'll never go on another expedition like that as long as I live. Emil looked up, smiling. The Englishman leaned towards him. I know what you're thinking, he challenged. You're thinking that this is the best joke you've heard in ages, aren't you? Emile did not reply. Well, I'll tell you something. I think it's the best joke I've ever heard in all my life. During supper, Clift talked a great deal and ate very little. Funny, he said, explaining himself. I imagined that I'd be able to eat a horse when I got back, and, and now there are all these foods here in front of me. I found it somehow nauseating. Emile listened to him, fascinated. The Englishman was sitting with a bottle of Kanye in front of him, and from time to time, without prompting from his companion, he picked it up and refilled his glass. Strange thing about the jungle, he continued, is that you don't get frightened by it. You can get into a panic, yes, and, and perhaps lose your head, but not in the way that you read about in books. You're scared at the very beginning, that's true, but it only lasts so long as you don't find out the secret. I wonder if you know the secret of the jungle. Emile said nothing. Aha, you don't know. So I'll tell you. The secret is that everything, every living being in the whole of the jungle is scared stiff. Fear travels through the trees like electricity, and there's so much of it on every side of you that, bingo, it just cancels itself out. Two minuses make a plus, just like that. When everybody is somebody, then nobody is anybody. Who was it made that remark? I can't remember now. But whoever he was, he knew what he was talking about. He knew all about the jungle. Take my hat off to him. He picked up the bottle from the table, and to draw attention to the fact that it was empty, he turned it upside down and shook it. Then he looked across at Emil. I say, you haven't got another bottle tucked away somewhere, have you? What about a nightcap? Presently they went out onto the veranda and sat down in the deck chairs overlooking the river. I bet you can't guess what I was thinking about most of the time on my way back here. I'll tell you, I, I was thinking of that idea of yours, the one about selling Kanye to the Indians. And I decided that it wasn't at all a bad proposition. I've got some gold left, had it hidden in my belt. Better invest it before it all goes. He leaned forward with a conspiratorial air. Is it really as easy as you said? What are the snags? Will you tell me more about it? There are no snags, Emile replied. The only people you've got to be careful of are the Indians themselves. Or oh, the Indians? Why on earth? Because alcohol makes them behave in a very odd way. You'll sell them a bottle of Kanya, a bottle which you've bought for thirty centavos on the other side of the river, and you will ask two pesos for it. That's nearly six hundred percent profit. Okay, in an hour or two perhaps they will come back and ask you to sell them another bottle. All right, you sell them the second bottle for five pesos. That's nearly 1,600% profit. And so on. But it sounds too easy for words. That's where you're wrong. It's just the damn fool sort of way a person like you would go and land himself in trouble. Perhaps you'd explain. Rather than sell a third bottle to an Indian, you'd do better to jump off a precipice. Listen, the man's already drunk. He probably hasn't got the money and knows you are swindling him. Perhaps he can even see the third bottle hidden under your bed, and the only thing that's stopping him from having it is you yourself. For him, it's simple arithmetic. You must be subtracted. That's all.
Oh, well, as long as one remembers when to stop, it's all right. Still make a roaring profit. Near at hand there sounded the wild laugh of an Urutau, high-pitched at first, then hilariously descending until, finally, it died away. How I hate that noise. The bloody bird's always laughing at you, never with you. Gets on my nerves. One morning, during the following week, Emile met the Englishman walking along the fringe of sand by the Takwara. Good morning, said Clift, jauntily. He was unshaven, but the dirtiness of his face was offset by the lively, almost gay blue of his eyes. How's life? All right, Emile told him. What about coming to my place for a drink? You haven't seen the hut since I tidied it up. It's looking quite attractive now. Emile hesitated. He had once told himself that never again would he set foot in Schlesinger's hut. Never, never. But now his resolution gave way to curiosity. Why not, he said, shrugging his shoulders and joining step with the Englishman. The hut was a two-roomed affair, low on the ground and almost without windows, surrounded on all sides by a corridor-like veranda. Not very beautiful from the outside, said Clift, but there's nothing to be done about that. He led the way up the steps onto the veranda and threw wide one of the doors that led off it. Need a few chintzes, I suppose, and some geraniums. Good old cottagey atmosphere. Four geraniums read orchids throughout. Exotic note. Emile stood in the open doorway looking around the bedroom. He saw a large brand new mirror hanging over the wash basin in the corner, while partly concealed beneath the bed he noticed a cluster of long-necked bottles. Clift followed the direction of his eyes. Business is booming, he said his voice undergoing an inflection of cheerfulness. Sold a couple of dozen yesterday. Managed to swap one for that mirror, too. Surely nice mirror, isn't it? He walked across to the washstand and regarded his reflection in the glass. Got to be able to keep an eye on my beard, you know. It's coming on, don't you think? Not as good as yours yet, but you just wait and see. He stroked his chin, fondling the flimsy growth which straggled across his skin. Over his shoulder he asked, Like a drink? Not now. Mind if I have one? He moved away from the mirror and pulled one of the bottles from under his bed. As he uncorked it, he said, I had a spot of bother last night. One chap wanted to buy a third bottle, just like you said, and we had a bit of a row. It was nothing serious, but I beat him up just to show who's wearing the trousers round here. Don't suppose there'll be any more trouble now. He swallowed a mouthful of Kanye straight from the bottle and wiped his hand across his lips. Incidentally, do you remember asking me if I needed a compañera, uh, you know, a sort of cook extraordinary? Well, I've been thinking that perhaps it wouldn't be a bad idea after all. Once the rain started, the visits of the paddle boat became less regular, and the captain, so as not to risk injury to his craft, was in the habit of travelling only by daylight and mooring for the night at any station where dusk had found him. So it was that one evening the boat drew up alongside the jetty, and from his veranda Emile could hear the captain shouting orders that the boat should be made fast to its moorings for the night. The rain was coming down hard, and already it was too late to start unloading, so Emile sent Silvestro with a message to the captain, asking him if he would care to come and have some dinner on shore. At seven o'clock the captain arrived. He was extremely grateful, he said, for the invitation. He hadn't seen Emile in such good spirits or in so kindly a frame of mind since... Well, since the old days, when Schlesinger had been alive. You know, Emile, he said as they sat taking a drink before supper, 
It never did you any good to live here absolutely alone. You're a person who needs company. It's natural for a fellow to become morose and depressed if he doesn't see another civilised being for months on end. Why, you're a changed man now that you've got a companion again. The older man was nodding, the wrinkles around his eyes creasing into a smile of satisfaction. How is he, by the way? Emil said, I think he's all right, but I don't see a great deal of him, you know. And what does he do with himself? Bit of trading? Successful? He was so keen to make a lot of money when he came out, something about a debt in England. He told me about it on the way here. Emil laughed. I don't think his intentions are quite so honourable now. The captain was surprised. Really? he queried. He seemed so earnest, so determined at the time. Isn't it extraordinary how people can change out here? Why, it isn't even a year since he came to this place, is it? Eight or nine months, that's all. But it feels like a long time. The captain said, I'd quite like to see him. He seems such a nice young fellow. I suppose he's coming over for supper. For supper? No, I don't think he'll come. As a matter of fact, I, I didn't think of asking him. We never eat together. You never eat together? But how extraordinary. I simply don't understand. You wouldn't, said Emile. But, but is there something wrong? Anything the matter with him? Voluntary liquidation, that's all. He's got a compañera now and lots of cagne. I think he's quite happy, after a fashion. We leave each other alone. I see, muttered the old captain, touching together the tips of his fingers in one of his more priestly attitudes. But I can scarcely believe it. What's wrong with him? D.T.'s? Worse than Schlesinger, said Emil. Not until supper was over did the captain return once more to the subject of Clift. He broached it tentatively, uncertain what would be his companion's reaction to its repetition. You know, Emil, he said, it's about this fellow Clift. I can't get over what you told me about him. It seems all wrong somehow. P please don't think I'm trying to interfere or anything, but there's nothing to be done. The captain's voice verged on timidity. Are you sure about that, he asked. After all, eight months isn't a very long time. It's long enough. I know you laugh at me, but I was wondering if you wouldn't take me to see him. Emile said, by all means go if you want to. But I think you'll find it's a waste of time. With a flashlight to guide them, they walked through the rain along the higher path which followed the fringe of Takwara towards Schlesinger's hut. When first they came to the clearing at the end of the path, they were unable to discern the outline of the hut, for there was no light burning in any window, and it was only because they could hear the resonant drumming of the rain upon the corrugated iron roof that they knew they had reached it. Wonder where he is, muttered the captain. Then, like a fist, a loud voice checked them. Who's there? Emile stopped. He didn't flash the torch in the direction of the voice, but instead lowered the beam and quietly said, It's me, Emile. What the hell do you want? We just walked over to see you. Skipper's here. He thought it would be nice if... It's, it's out of visiting hours. Now their eyes had grown accustomed to the darkness. They were able to see him, stark naked, sitting in a wicker chair on the veranda, his legs propped up on top of the balustrade. Visiting hours, he went on, Mondays and Thursdays, three o'clock. Then he lowered his legs and leaned forward so that his face came close to the railings. Why do you come creeping up like this in the middle of the night? What's the idea of spying on me? The captain said, You remember me, don't you? We weren't spying. I merely thought that it would be pleasant to call on you and have a chat. Chat about what? 
about anything you like. I thought maybe you'd want to hear the latest news from Buenos Aires, and besides, I wanted to see how you're getting on out here. Why can't you mind your own business? I suppose you want me to sell you a bottle of plonk. Is that why you came? Well, you can have one. Five pesos. Cash down. May we come in out of the rain? asked the captain. No, you might be shocked. It wouldn't do to shock an old gentleman. They heard the tinkle of a bottleneck against the rim of a glass. Anyhow, I don't want any haggling. Five pesos. No more. No less. I don't want to buy a bottle, said the captain. Well, what the hell do you want, then? Emile took the captain by the sleeve. Come on, he said impatiently. But the elder man checked him and said to Cliff, Why are you sitting there in the dark like that? Why? came the turbid echo. For a moment there was silence, save for the rain on the tin roof and the croaking of frogs in the taquara. Then Cliff started to laugh and once more put his face close to the bars of the balustrade. Do you know what you look like from here? You look like a couple of monkeys in the zoo. Very wet and miserable. You'll start sprouting in a minute. If you stand long enough in the rain, you'll go green, just like everything else around here. The sky, the rain, the river, even the mud and the leather of your boots. Horrible colour, too. Too clean. Too glib. What wouldn't you give to see red again? Lovely, sticky, bloody red. Red. Suddenly he threw up his arms and jumped to his feet. For God's sake, go away, he shouted. Stop standing there and staring like a couple of apes. Go away, go away and leave me alone. An empty bottle splashed into the mud at their feet. Emile saw the wildly gesticulating body as it pranced across the veranda, and in his ear he heard the hollow voice of the captain saying, It's you, Emile, damn you. It's you who have done this. Emile was still asleep when the door of his bedroom opened and a stream of sunlight fell across his eyelids. From somewhere a long way off he heard a voice saying, Good morning, and suddenly he found himself wide awake, sitting up in bed and seeing the figure of Clift in the open doorway. What the devil do you mean, he demanded, busting into here at this hour of the morning. His throat was still thick with sleep, his voice clogged. I wanted to be certain of catching you, replied the Englishman. Besides, it isn't as early as all that. Go and wait on the veranda until I'm ready. There's no need for that. I only wanted to ask you one question. Emile lit himself a cigarette. Well, what is it? I want to know when the boat's due in again. You know as well as I do that it calls once a month. There was embarrassment, almost shyness in the Englishman's face, an expression he had not worn since the first days of his arrival as he replied, Yes, but when did it call last? I don't seem to remember having seen it for quite a long time. My, my memory's a bit hazy, you know. I, I haven't been too well lately. Why do you want to know when the boat's coming? Why? Because I want to catch it. I've decided to go back. And is that the reason why you've come and woken me up, just to tell me that? This place is getting me down, Emil. I want to get away from it before it's too late. You're crazy. Perhaps, perhaps I am but not completely. I suddenly become disgusted by myself. I often used to think that it would be fun to go to pot, you know, chuck everything overboard. But now that I've tried it, it's funny, but I can scarcely remember a thing that has happened during the past year. But a man needs a memory. Life is hell without it, Emile said. You think so? I'd give a great deal to be able to dispense with mine. You're an older man, Clift replied, then hesitated, uncertain as how he should qualify his remark. 
Finally, he said, I have so little to forget. I often think of what you once told me about that chap Schlesinger, how he became obsessed with small things, the eyes of alligators, a night bird, the noise of frogs. I can understand him now. All through the rains I found my mental horizon growing narrower and narrower until finally I was scarcely aware of anything at all. Even the bottles of Kanye just came and went. I suppose I drank most of them, but I can't remember much about it. I might as well have been dead. Why are you telling me all this? asked Emile. Merely to show you that I am independent of you. What do you mean? As far as I am concerned, you could as well not exist. That's not quite true, is it? You're a strange fellow, Emile. I wonder what satisfaction you get out of these these experiments of yours. I could stay here for another year, and you wouldn't care tuppence if you ever saw me or not. But the idea that I might one day decide to go away would be something quite hateful to you. Now he treated Emile to a smile, as if to wash over the words he had just spoken. Well, anyhow, there are no hard feelings, so far as I'm concerned. I shall often think of you after I've gone. You taught me a lot. Perhaps I should even thank you. Oh, shut up, said Emile. I've never heard such drivel in my life. On the eve of Clift's departure, Emile wandered over to the hut and found the Englishman on the veranda, leaning on the balustrade and gazing out across the river. Hello, Emile. I was just taking a look at this view for the last time. The sunset's never been lovelier. Clift had shaved off his beard and combed his hair, and except for the colour of his skin, his appearance at first glance was as fresh and youthful as on the day of his arrival at the station. It was only upon closer scrutiny that his eyes appeared to lie deeper in their sockets, his lips to be slightly downturned at the corners, his skin to be drawn more tightly across the framework of bone beneath it. Emile said, I thought we might have a farewell drink together, so I brought this along with me. From within his shirt he fished out a bottle of whisky. Scotch, he announced, mounting the steps to the veranda and placing the bottle upon the bamboo table in the corner. That's terribly nice of you, said Clift. I know how hard it is to come by a bottle of that stuff, but I'm off it, you know, on the wagon. Haven't had a drop for a couple of weeks. Emile smiled. So Silvestro told me, but I didn't believe it. He shrugged his shoulders, and over his face, in place of the frozen smile, there crept a look of disappointment. Ah, well, he said, it was just an idea. I suppose I shall have to drink it by myself. For a moment, Clift hesitated. Then, I'm awfully sorry, he said. I didn't mean to be unsociable. Of course, let's have a drink together, for old time's sake. And giggling, he added, but just one, no more, because I know I'd get terribly tiddly. Funny how quickly one becomes light-headed once the stuff has gone out of one's system. It was dark by the time they had finished the bottle, and already the night's voices, like a jazz band which has not yet warmed up, were producing their passionless overture. Clift said, I'm feeling pretty fine. He tapped the whiskey bottle and listened to its empty ring. Pity it's finished, he muttered, and got up and went through the door to his bedroom. A moment later... He reappeared, a bottle under each arm and a broad grin across his face. I was keeping these as a farewell present for Silvestro, he announced, placing the bottles on the table. But I think we might as well drink them, don't you? I can give him something else instead. Of course, of course, agreed Emil. Silly to stop drinking now, now that we both feel so good. Besides, we've really got something to celebrate this time, eh? Think of it. 
The last time in this damned hole. Scarcely believe it. Are you jealous of me, Emil? Bet you are, whatever you say. Emil was pouring out drinks from one of the fresh bottles. Jealous, he said. I don't think so. I'm happy for your sake, but I'm not envious of you. Why should I be? Cliff laughed. Liar, he said, and leaned forward and patted Emil on the knee. Poor old Emil, going to be left behind. You'll be so lonely all by yourself. No one to practice on. No more blood-sucking by remote control. Who'll be your guinea pig when I've gone? What'll you do with yourself in the evenings? He thought his last remark was very funny and again started to laugh. Then suddenly he stopped and sat bolt upright in his chair. Listen, he half-whispered raising a finger. From far off, riding on the night, there sounded the mad laugh of an Urutau. The Englishman was peering out into the darkness, as if his eyes could pierce into the depths of the jungle. My spiritual mother, he said, his voice very low. Did you hear her calling? You're mad, Emil exclaimed, as mad as Schlesinger. Cliff chuckled. That's what you'd like to think, isn't it? What a kick it would give you. Can't you hear yourself telling people? The bird got him. The bird and the alligators and Kanya. Just like they got poor old Schlesinger. Isn't that exactly what you'd say? I warned him, you'd tell them, but he took no notice. He wouldn't listen to my advice, the young fool. So he went off his head. Think of the satisfaction you'd get out of being able to say that. The omniscient meal knows all, sees all, hears all. Soul survivor, clever fellow. Emile said nothing. He was aware of a strange numbness in his brain, as though an old photograph were being projected before his eyes and occupying the entire theatre of his mind. This was Schlesinger sitting in the chair before him, a blonde Schlesinger with blue eyes and bare knees, speaking dead words, making the ghosts of gestures. The Englishman was talking to him, but he scarcely heard a word that was said, the voice came to him, blurred through a screen of fog. Bloodsucker in chief. Thought you'd get me drunk tonight, didn't you, so that I'd start on another bout and miss the boat tomorrow? That's why you brought along the bottle of scotch, wasn't it? Very cunning, I don't think. Did you imagine I was such a fool to be taken in by that sort of child's trick? Again, he started chuckling. Then he leaned forward and refilled his glass to the brim. I'm going, Emil, I'm going tomorrow, and you'd better get used to the idea, because nothing that you can do will stop me. I'm drunk now, so I'll tell you this straight. I don't despise you, you and your diseased brain. It's you who's mad, not me. You're riddled through and through like a worm-eaten cheese, a dirty German cheese. Through clenched teeth, Emil said, I told you once before. You've told me a lot of things, so what? Emil was staring at the unopened bottle on the table before him. It was only a few inches away from his fingertips, big and heavy, bigger and heavier, as he watched it. His hand crept forward, and then of a sudden he had gripped it round the neck so tightly that it seemed his knuckle bones would burst right through the skin of his fingers. So this, he said, slowly rising to his feet, the bottle like lead in his hand. Emile was checking over the pile of canvas bales on the jetty when he heard the captain's voice close behind him. Emile, I've got some receipts I'd like you to sign in my cabin. Can you spare a moment? 
Emile shrugged his shoulders. All right, he said, and turned and followed the captain across the gangplank. In the cabin, the captain said, just the usual lot of stuff, nothing extra this month. He walked over to the desk and pushed the sheaf of papers onto the blotter. Emile sat down and took a pen and started signing the receipts. Paraffin, tinned peaches, mosquito nets, a tabrin tablets, oil, a case of rum, corned beef, salt, more salt. He scribbled his name automatically at the bottom of each sheet, not troubling to check the items whose delivery he was acknowledging. He knew that the captain would never cheat him, would never cheat anyone for that matter, through fear of eternal damnation. For a while, the scratching of the pen was the only sound to break the silence in the cabin, but presently, in a voice that simulated casualness, the captain said, I've just been having a chat with Silvestro. He told me about Clift. It's too bad. Yes, it's too bad, Emil agreed, still writing, not looking up. The nib made a noise like a rodent's teeth upon wood. Is it true? I don't know what Silvestro told you. He said that Clift had intended to catch the boat today. Emile went on writing, speaking to the papers in front of him. Yes, he replied. Yes, I believe he did say something about leaving. But he didn't mention when or how. As you know, we didn't see much of each other. But weren't you with him last night, saying goodbye? Sylvester said he had voices. Not mine, and never went near the hut. But you know how these Indians love gossip. You mean you didn't see him at all last night? Not after supper? He came over to my bungalow earlier in the evening and asked me to sell him a bottle of scotch. I let him have one. He didn't say what he wanted it for. Didn't he mention that he was intending to leave? Not then, no, not a word. He told me he had some Indians waiting for him at the hut. I presumed he was going to sell them the bottle. Anyway, we scarcely spoke. He was pretty drunk. Drunk? Silvestro didn't think he was. Slowly, Emile laid down the pen and leaned forward his elbows resting upon the papers which were strewn across the blotter. "'What are you getting at?' he demanded. "'Is this an inquisition?' I-, "'I couldn't help my curiosity, Emil. The whole thing reminds me so much of Schlesinger, except that Schlesinger was killed. "'But what of Clift? He'll live. I'll look after him all right.' The captain seated himself upon the edge of the desk, his fingers spreading themselves across the warm mahogany border. "'Emile,' he said, almost implored, why don't you let me bring the young fellow on board? I could take him down to Buenos Aires and have him put in a proper hospital. Emile raised his hand. Out of the question, he replied. He's far too ill to travel. He'd never stand the journey. But what chance has he got here? You've no facilities, no proper medical kit. I've got my knowledge, that's enough. Besides, he's still unconscious. It would be madness to risk moving him. Sylvester says that his head's in a terrible mess. How do you think it happened? Emile grunted. Same old story, I suppose. The young fool didn't take my advice. I told him never to sell a third bottle of liquor to the same Indian. He obviously did. But what of his companiera? Surely she could have prevented it. He gave her the sack a fortnight ago, and there was nobody with him. The captain shook his head helpless. Then he asked, Will you make me a promise, Emile? That depends. What is it? Promise to do your best for him. Promise to keep him alive. Emile looked indignant. What the hell else do you think I'd do? Kill him off? Don't be so damned silly. I look after him as though he were my own son. I'm fond of him, you know, even though I don't see much of him. And I enjoy his company, too. It'll be nice to have him around for a while longer. 
Everybody dies, don't they? That was the zombie of Paranio Alta, um, which was requested by Lee Griefson. Lee Griefson's one of my patrons, and he'd requested this story ages ago. And I had I had a lot of trouble getting hold of it. I couldn't actually find a copy anywhere. And Lee um, very kindly had his own copy. And what we did was he photographed the pages and emailed them to me for me. And I've been reading them from. Uh, basically a, a load of pictures that he that he took on his camera and sent through, eventually when we got them all in the right order. Um, so there we are. Now, let me tell you something about um, W. Stanley Moss, the author. So W. Stanley Moss, commonly known as Billy Moss, to his friends anyway, full name, Ivan William Stanley Moss, Military Cross, born 15th June 1921, died 9th of August 1965. So he wasn't massively old uh, when he died. He was only 44. He was born, uh, not bizarrely, but interestingly, in Yokohama, Japan, and died in Kingston, Jamaica. Yet he was British by identification, I guess, and probably legally as well. He had a tremendously interesting background. I said he was born in Yokohama, and his mother, Natalia Galich, was uh, Russian, a white Russian emigre, so obviously... um, left Russia after the communists took hold, and his father, William Stanley Moss, was an English businessman and steel merchant in Japan, and they married on September uh, 1916, and he then went to school in England at Charterhouse, which is a very um, well-known public school. In fact, I don't know, we had a school we had to do um, Goodbye to All That by Robert Graves, and I know that he attended Charterhouse, but I think he's uh, older than Billy Moss. He was an adventurous cove because he left Charterhouse aged 18 and went to live in a log cabin on the Latvian coast. And when war broke out, he uh, crossed to England via Stockholm, crossed the North Sea in a yacht and uh, became um, an officer and was commissioned as an ensign into the Coldstream Guards. And then he was in the um, Battle of Tobruk in North Africa with the 8th Army chasing Rommel across North Africa after Alamein. And then he uh, stayed in Cairo. And in '43, it says, Moss moved into a spacious villa with a great ballroom with parquet floors. And he chose to live in the villa rather than the SOE hostel. So he became a member of um, the Special Operations Executive. So they were, if you don't know anything about them, uh, they were the um, like the OSS of the Americans, but they, they were a sabotage unit. They weren't an intelligence unit. They were covert. But, and they weren't special forces. They weren't the SAS and they went SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service. They were the SOE, although they, all of those three were related um, and not necessarily friends with each other, but worked with each other. Somebody might correct me about that. But he, he lived a very colourful life. Um, German gold and Abwehr reserves, going to Antarctica in 1958. In Cairo, he lived with Patrick Lee uh, Fermore, who wrote that great book, Time of Gifts, about walking through. And these were wonderfully adventurous, privileged young men living a fantastic life. Moss married Countess Zofia Tarnowska, who was a Polish emigre who'd left following the German uh, invasion. Then they moved to Ireland in the 50s and lived in a big house in County Cork and uh, lived a tremendous life. Um, you know, he, he worked in Greece and sabotage and Thailand and all those kind of things. And he was honoured, got the military uh, cross for exceptional gallantry. 
with Patrick Lee for more. Uh, and when they kidnapped a German uh, general in uh, Crete, you know, tremendous japes, really. Not japes, serious stuff, really, but also very much the, um, the stuff of which these things are, these stories are made. Towards the end of his life, he moved to Jamaica. And of course, um, the writer of James Bond, Ian Fleming, also lived famously in Jamaica. But Moss lived there and he died in 1965, aged 44, of complications arising from alcoholism. And his, um, his, his stone says, in loving memory of William Stanley Moss, a soldier, a writer, a traveller. So grand stuff, really. And the story was pretty much as you might imagine somebody with that life would write it. It's exotic. It's about um, Englishmen having, I mean, an Emil is German, but is he really German? I mean, um, obviously, Stanley Moss knew Germans um, from, his, from his work, mainly by him killing them, as far as I can tell. But um, he, yeah, what can we say? So this and and the alcohol is interesting as well, isn't it? The alcoholism. Alcoholics all often write about alcoholism because it's something they know really well. But um, I suppose, and it reminded me of Graham Greene. You know, travel without maps. Travels my my aunt when he he goes to South America, and also a story we we did the um, the boomerang story about the bug in the ear. And these are like, there's this genre of stories of colonial daring do written by the British officers and um, adventurers, travellers, whatever. And it is a boy's own story. It's the kind of thing that would have been in the, uh, that the boys of the 1950s and 1960s would devour. It's the sort of thing I used to read when I was a kid, um, those kind of stories. So it's not a supernatural story. And I suppose... I I was waiting, when I first read it, I was waiting for the supernatural twist because it's called a zombie. And then you've got to think a bit more carefully of zombies because let's talk about what a zombie is, a proper zombie. I'm not talking about the zombie apocalypse where they wander around and eat your brains and stuff and the walking dead. I'm talking about other night of the living dead and all that. But what the kind of zombie that existed before those stories. By the way, this story came out in 1950, so he may have written it then or he may have written it a year or two before. So when we go back, um, we find that originally in Haitian folklore, a zombie was a dead person physically revived by an act of necromancy by a bokor, a sorcerer or witch, and used as a slave. It has no mind of its own. So here we see that this is the kind of zombie we're talking about, and it, it seems that our man Emile really lives on his own in deep, deep in the jungle, I guess down the Amazon or somewhere, and the boat only comes once a month, and he doesn't have a good social relationship with the indigenous people there, um, being quite um, disparaging of them and treating them as inferiors and using their women as possessions. So, you know, he hasn't got anybody much to talk to, and... It doesn't even seem that he wants much conversation, but it's it does seem that he wants Clift after Schlesinger dies, he want it Clift comes and he sees an opportunity to have him as a sort of a possession, a slave, uh, even though he doesn't want him to do any work. His his job is to be another white man in the jungle and to make Emil feel not so alone. So this is a story very much of its time. 
you know, nobody these days... It, no, so the British Empire's gone. So th that class of adventurer... I've just been watching this SAS program about the, called Rogue Heroes, about the formation of the SAS, SAS in the North um, African desert. And they come across as a bunch of entitled assholes, to be fair, um, which they may have been. Um, but and, th and this is the kind of thing we're dealing with, this sort of entitled, privileged, overgrown schoolboy life. Um, and so I, I think we wouldn't get it written these days, um, both because of the racism and misogyny and the colonial attitudes and for a million other reasons it wouldn't be but it is of its time and it is a, a ripping yarn for boys um i wonder given that the majority of people who listen to this channel are women i wonder what they think about it it'll be interesting because it may be that they did enjoy it and i shouldn't prejudge things like that but there we are that's it um it's i'm actually recording this on new year's eve people have already started firing fireworks and of course as i get older i disapprove of things more and so fireworks should be reserved for certain dates november the 5th and i guess okay at a push new year's eve but only after midnight for a brief period because they frighten the animals and also i don't like when people are undisciplined so people should keep to the rules okay about fireworks and about not necessarily about everything but about fireworks, certainly. I love fireworks, don't get me wrong. I love, oh, sparkly, sparkly. I love sparkly things. And so I love fireworks. But, uh, you know, there is, there's no discipline left in the world, is there? And I'm sure. I wonder whether Stanley Moss would have agreed with me. Anyway, he had a tremendously exciting life. Goodness me. And the stories, as it goes, is not a bad yarn. And in the end, yeah, the zombie is, in fact, it makes sense. This is his zombie that he has created, not through an act of sorcery, but through an act of violence, to become his mindless slave to meet a need that no one else can meet. And so it's not a, um, a story without any depth at all. That, that is actually an interesting, if unreflected upon, um, concept. I, I wonder if he was capable of reflecting upon that, um, because... These, you know, the things he takes for granted, he takes for granted. We, we're all like that, really, aren't we? We all live in our own goldfish bowls. We are goldfish, and we don't notice the water. So our cultural norms, we often talk about this, are things that we just take for granted. We don't even question them. My stepfather was very much like that. He would have absolutely been on board with this story, and he kind of probably had a cultural milieu that, what, that would have seen a lot of this as... Um, and what am I talking about? Yeah, the whole thing as just being the way things were. That was it. It was just the way things were, for better or for worse. Anyway, that's that good. Happy New Year. I've already done a Happy New Year. I think I may well do go out on an old Lang Syne as well, even though it's not your New Year. When you hear this, it'll be in January. But it's never too late to think of old Lang Syne. Or as we would say in Cumberland, old Lang Syne. So once again, this is Terence Burns and the Cocktown Popes. i 